A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to, and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. It should be you, the consumer that makes that choice, not government forcing you to do it. Because the upfront cost still is high especially for families struggling with the cost of living. So to give us more time to prepare, I'm announcing today that we're going to ease the transition to electric vehicles. You'll still be able to buy petrol and diesel cars and vans until 2035. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum McDonald and we are recording on Wednesday the 20th of September. And between you and I, uh, we're actually re-recording on Wednesday the 20th of September. We did this this morning. But then it turned out the Prime Minister had some important announcements to make on Net Zero. So here we are assembling to bring you the latest and to bring you the instant reaction. Coming up on the podcast a little bit later on, you'll hear from Caroline Wheeler, who's the Sunday Times political editor. Her new book looks at the contaminated blood scandal in the NHS, a story that she's been reporting for 20 years. And the culmination of her reporting is this book, which hears from those who are victims, their families, from Theresa May, the Prime Minister, and speaks of Caroline's work alongside Theresa May and others to get an inquiry into the contaminated blood scandal. It's a really fascinating listen, and as you might imagine, Caroline explains it so well. So that's coming up later on in the podcast. You'll also hear today from James Price, who served as a government senior special advisor across five departments, actually, including as chief of staff to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nadim Zahawi. He is now at the Adam Smith Institute, and he shares his reflections on one year since the Kamikaze budget Remember that? The mini-budget, Liz Truss, quasi-quarting. Yeah, that was almost a year ago. Well, depending on when you're listening, it might have been a year ago. In any case, James Price is going to break it down for us and crucially assess where we are at now and whether it was inevitable that that mini-budget would have such long-lasting impact as is, well, I was going to say credited with, but you know what I mean. Are we still feeling the effect of the mini-budget today? Thank you for finding us, or thank you for being here. If you've been here for a long old time, uh, we're nearly a year old, would you believe? Uh, You can email us with your questions, with your analysis, and with your experiences as well. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. Also here, as always, Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. 
Hi, Callum. Uh, thanks for regrouping at the end of what has been quite a chaotic day. Um, Rishi Sunak has just finished his press conference on net zero. Uh, so let's get straight to that and let's try to understand exactly what he's said, what he's not said and what it all means. So he's outlined uh, really a range of measures to... Well, step away from some of the government's climate change commitments. He made some interesting claims, too, about sort of politics more generally. Um, He said politicians had not been honest with the public about how much net zero was going to cost. Uh, He said that the current approach would impose unacceptable costs on hard-pressed British families, and so that risked a public backlash against net zero. So in terms of some of the announcements, he says the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030 is going to be pushed back to 2035. He's also announced changes to the plan to phase out new boilers, suggesting that poorer households will have to pay, excuse me, would never have to pay to install a new heat pump. There's going to be grants. They're going to increase from £5,000 to £7,500. He's going to speed up the building of clean energy infrastructure. Kirsty, this is the culmination of a chaotic 24 hours uh, since Chris Mason, whom we heart, uh, the BBC's political editor, broke the story of the leak of this was that this was on the way. Uh, just summarise where we have ended today. What has actually happened? Uh, right. Well, where we've ended today is um, with a a good political package for Rishi Sunak. Uh, I know a lot of people in the Westminster Village will be getting their smelling salts out tonight. Uh, But what we've got is a a totemic package that will appeal hugely to people, uh, particularly in the red wall seats. We've done a lot of focus group and polling on this area, uh, and I have no doubt that Downing Street has too. Um, And it appears that the Conservatives have learnt the right lessons from Uxbridge, which is that red wall voters, like anybody else, do not want the world to burn. Uh, They want to protect the planet and they support climate action as much as the next man. What they are fiercely resistant and angry about uh, in the face of a cost of living crisis, the like of which we haven't seen probably for a generation, is what we would call mandated change. In other words, costs being imposed on them uh, to uh, help meet net zero targets when they look around the world and see big industrial nations uh, not pulling their weight, if you like. And this is centred on uh, two areas, one of which is the time frame in which we phase out petrol and diesel vehicles and bring in electric vehicles, and the time frame that we phase out uh, our lovely gas boilers and put in uh, what at the moment are quite expensive heat pumps. Mm. Now, you know, the interesting thing to note about this is uh, it is a shift of five years that puts us mainly in line with the vast majority of Europe. It doesn't make us an outlier by any by any stretch. And the important thing that Rishi said in his speech, and this is the this is the pivotal point for him. You know, we can get to net zero, we can meet our climate ambitions, we can hit the 2050 target, but it has to be done in a way that is fair and proportionate and brings people with us. Because if you don't bring people with you, you will sour the entire debate about climate action. And it's a two, that's a balancing act for him. It's not just about reaching reaching net zero, it's about doing it in a way that doesn't penalise people and brings people with them. There's also, um, I'm not going to say a swear word, so let's just say it's classic plop sandwich speech. So he says a lot of things at the top that's very deeply committed to uh, climate action and net zero. Then he squeezes in the slightly controversial bit in the middle, and then he moves on to some really good stuff for industry. I know industry's um, reaction to the leak on this has been uh, has been one of ire, but there is some brilliant stuff in here for industry, which... Uh, you know, around speeding up uh, connectivity to the grid. We have a bizarre system of grid connectivity at the moment, uh, which is a sort of first come, first serve, uh, regardless of whether you're actually ready to get connected to the grid, which causes Mm. all kinds of backlogs down the line. Um, uh, And then uh, a removal of some of the uh, ridiculous planning restrictions that hold up some of our great kind of major energy projects, which will have a huge impact 
on our energy security. So there's a lot of politics at play at this. Just to talk very briefly about the comms on it, mm. um, you know, this is a classic example of why you know good comms matters. Yeah. What should have been a front foot, well landed speech turned into a leak. Uh, to brilliant Chris Mason, we heart Chris Mason, mm. um, and it's been you know twenty four hours of panic. You've had the reaction uh, and a lot of anger poured onto this speech before we've seen the full content of what he wanted to put out. So this is why good comms matters because it allows you to frame the debate in the way that you want it to, to get it landed in the way you wanted to, and once again, what should have been a front foot on number ten has ended up on a back foot in terms of comms, and then scrambling to catch up with the story, having to move their speech forward, and having a lot of the reaction to the speech before we'd even had the speech itself. Yeah, indeed, and it's worth mentioning that we are responding and analysing to this about half an hour after. Rich- Sunak finished speaking and so the reaction is coming in. Liz Truss says I welcome the delay on banning the sale of new petrol and diesel cars as well as the delay on the ban on oil and gas boilers this is particularly important for rural areas. I now urge the government to abolish the windfall tax on oil and gas and lift the fracking ban which would reduce people's energy bills and make the UK more competitive. And it's being reported also that the Shadow Environment Secretary Steve Reid confirms that Labour would keep the ban on the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030. Rishi Sunak's pushing that back to 2035. Right, at this point, let's bring in Sam Richards, former energy and environment advisor to Boris Johnson and founder of the pro-growth campaign group Britain Remade. Sam, hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello, it's great to be here. It's great to have you, Sam. Right, first of all then, by way of your response to what Rishi Sunak has announced, how are you feeling about it? Well, it was a truly weird speech, if I'm honest. Um, he's created large amounts of uncertainty for our automotive sector. And over the last 24 hours, you've seen the quotes from companies like Ford who wanted him to retain the 2030 phase-out date. Uh, but yeah, they've decided to push that back. And that's a shame, putting at risk some well-paid jobs in the industry of the future here in Britain. But there was some good stuff in there. And because we talked about the commitment to speed up the building of new energy, and this is something that we've been focused on at Britain Remade. It takes 13 years to get a new offshore wind farm up and running when actually building the thing takes two. The reason for that huge delay is both the time it takes to get a grid connection and the planning system. So if they're serious about Uh, speeding up the energy infrastructure, that has the potential to be hugely significant for our move to net zero. So alongside the uncertainty that they created for our automotive sector, and of course, the chaotic manner in which the speech came about, there are actually some potentially positive steps for the economy and for our push to net zero. Yeah, that's interesting to sort of to consider that. Uh, Ed Davies' response, in 2018, Boris Johnson said, F, business, there's a bad word in there. On Monday, Liz Truss said, scrap net zero targets. Today, Rishi Sunak has done both in one fell swoop. Would you agree with the, with the leader of the Lib Dems, um, Sam? It seems you're, you're, you're taking a bit more of a nuanced approach to this, that actually there is, there is uncertainty and difficulty in there, but actually there's some, there's some reason for optimism too. Yeah, well, firstly, he obviously didn't scrap the overall Mm. net zero target. He's still committed to 2050 and committed to the interim carbon budgets to get us there. Now, the experts will have to tell us about whether with the new policies, so the pushing back of the uh, EV, uh, sorry, the petrol and diesel ban from 2030 to 2035, whether the government is still able to hit those carbon budgets. And that will be part of the debate over coming months. Um, But... They have still committed to those to those headline targets, but and, and as I say, the speeding up of building the offshore wind, building renewables, building the grid could be more significant uh, in in helping us get there. Mm. Is there an argument, Sam, that actually you know the sort of response to this? You know, if I use Richard Holden MP's uh, words that he's just tweeted, he's the Roads and Local Transport Minister, uh, Conservative MP, of course. He says the PM is bang on with his honest, long-term decisions. We'll never impose unnecessary and heavy-handed measures on British people. He uses a union flag uh, instead of British. Um, 
is there an argument though to be made that in order to achieve these targets, you actually do need to be a bit heavy-handed. You need to say, look, guys, you need to bear some pain here in order for us to achieve this in the midst of what is a climate crisis. Well, the most important thing actually that you need to do is to give the business community the confidence to invest in the new green tech. And that's why the last 24 hours have been so damaging, because the firms who are going to be building the wind farms and the batteries and the electric cars and the heat pumps uh, have been tearing their hair out at the sense that the government was going cold on net zero. That's the most important thing that we need to do. Uh, now, we, kn- we now have a little bit more certainty about the, about the policies going forward. Uh, and as I say, the important bit now is going to be about speeding up those, those grid connections and those planning rules to get the clean energy built. Kirsty, what if there is another cost of living crisis? That seems to be the context by which these targets have been moved in order that, you know, the kind of overall message is people can't afford to bear this burden right now and so we need a bit more time. But actually, what are the ideal circumstances in which to do these things and to achieve these things? Well, despite what it says at the front of the lectern when Rishi gave his speech about long-term decisions for a brighter future, this is a short-term political move. I mean, that's the reality of it. You know, this is a move designed with uh, more than half an eye on the next general election. He's trying to open up some and has opened up some clear blue water between the Conservatives and Labour and said, look, we get you. We understand. We feel your pain. Um, We know you don't like the, you know, being pushed into, you know, buying these pesky electric vehicles and uh, having these these big expensive heat pumps in your homes. We we get it and we're going to push it back. Um, And we're going to increase the grants for you. And we're going to protect people in low income families from, from having to go there at all. So it is you know, regardless of what they what they say about, you know, prepared to take the big decisions for the future. And, you know, Sam is right, there is lots of big infrastructure transition measures in there that if they come off are are hugely significant for this country for energy security and for growth. Um but on these specific retail issues, it's very much about what happens next year. Um, and I think, you know, in private, people say, well, worry about the next cost of living crisis when the next cost of living crisis comes along. And, mm. you know, I mean, you are reminded, obviously, again with this, that, you know, the Conservative Party is a is a very broad church. Um, and on the one side, I'm sure, you've, you know, you've got you know, centre-right papers and, and, and the populist right of the party saying, huzzah, here is, here is finally some meat on the bones. Rishi Sunak's getting some actual politics out there. And Zach Goldsmith saying, you know, on the other side, you know, this is a moment of shame for the party. Well, look, you know, nice for Zach Goldsmith. He can afford a million heat pumps. But, you know, I can't afford a heat pump in my home at the moment. And yeah. I'm sure a vast majority of people don't. So... So this is a political move. It is it's designed for voters and it's designed, you know, as his argument is, is not to sour the debate so that you lose the vast majority of people in the climate debate who are in the centre ground. They're not on the extremes. They do believe in climate uh, change. They do believe in the need for climate action. They do support 2050, but they can't afford to pay for it right now. And they don't see why they should when you've got countries like China belching out you know, pollution like it's going out of fashion. And it is for the centre ground that, you know, this policy is designed. It's not designed for, you know, a load of well-heeled One Nation Tories. uh, And it's not designed for a load of rabid, you know, climate, you know, deniers or sceptics either. It's designed for for hardworking people uh, who want to be fair and reasonable and proportionate about this. Sam, on on the theme of kind of certainty and knowing where we go from here, Can you track for us the various prime ministers' uh, ambitions and commitments when it comes to net zero? You worked with Boris Johnson. We had a brief glimpse of Liz Truss around this time last year. Has there been consistency across administrations, if you like, or is this the clearest indication we've got of the direction of travel? On the first question, no, there quite clearly hasn't been consistency across administrations. Net zero was a top priority for Boris Johnson when he was prime minister. 
um, culminating in the uh, leading the world at COP um, to sign a whole raft of commitments, such as pledging to protect 90% of the world's forests and, and various other environmental commitments. It is clearly not a priority for Rishi Sunak. It is not one of his top five top five priorities. And I think that is a mistake, not because of the small matter of saving the planet from ecological catastrophe, um, but from the point that it is the industry, it, it is the, the engine of the industries of the future. At the exact moment that China, the US, the EU are investing trillions in the clean energy transition, Rishi Sunak's government wants to slow down the pace and it will see British consumers and British businesses lose out on the jobs and the cheap products of the future. Yeah, and this is this is the actual critical point that Sam hits here in trying to uh, appeal to, uh, to to voters uh, around you know retail issues. How much damage does that then cause to the very thing that you're trying to preserve, which is that the voters also want to see, which is you know energy security, jobs and investment coming to this country because you know. Media and you know, uh, kind of global mood music doesn't allow for the subtleties of oh, you know, there's some good bits in the speech and there's some bad bits in the speech. Most people are going to read the headlines and say Rishi Sunak, you know, uh, calls on net zero and um, waters down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, you know, on the global stage at the moment, you know, uh, Unger's going on at the moment. A lot of the focus is around climate action and the need for urgent climate action. What does UN, it say about UN that? General Assembly. Yeah. I beg your pardon. Yes, sorry, I've got all acronym on you. You know, Rishi was isn't there. He's here, um, laying down the first piece of turf in a in a road that leads to the general election. Um, so, so some of it's about that, and some of it's about you know industry and 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 you've got you know the Inflation Reduction Act, this mammoth mammoth piece of you know legislation from Joe Biden, which really should be just called the Green Subsidies Act. Um, courting inward investment in you know in renewable uh, industries into America, the European Union has scrambled to, to, to match and meet that. And globally now, we're going to be seen uh, as a country that is slightly called uh, called on that, and and business is very unhappy about that. So there are two parts to this for voters. One is about the cost in their own household, and the other is actually secure doing the right things to secure the energy security the growth and the jobs that they also desperately want to see and need. Sam, as a final thought, is it easy to make the pitch that growth and green policies can go hand in hand? Uh, So the cheapest source of power now in the UK, the cheapest source of electricity is onshore wind. The easiest thing that we can do to cut bills for consumers, to cut costs for businesses, is to make it easier to build onshore wind turbines in the UK. And we've seen the cost curves across all different forms of green technologies, from wind turbines to solar panels to batteries, falling vertiginously over the last three decades. And we will see the same cost curves happening for electric cars and heat pumps over coming decades if we give businesses the certainty to invest in those products. So green and growth do go hand in hand, but you have to have the right policy environment created by government in order to enable both of those things. Okay. And so actually, just if I may sneak in another one, is this the right policy environment? Have we just moved to that place in literally the last hour? I think that we've added more unnecessary uncertainty for business, but we do have an opportunity with the potential changes to the planning system and to the way that we do grid connections to make it uh, faster to build those sources of power that will cut costs for businesses and cover carbon emissions at the same time. Sam, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on the pod. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. That is Sam Richards, uh, former Energy and Environment Advisor to Boris Johnson. Your thoughts then, very welcome to you. 
Do you embrace this new direction of travel on Net Zero? Email hello at whitehallsources.com. Right, lots still to come on the podcast. We're going to be talking about the Kamikaze budget, which was almost a year ago, would you believe? Plus, the Sunday Times political editor, Caroline Wheeler, joins us as her book on the contaminated blood scandal is published. Uh, you can email always hello at whitehallsources.com to have your say. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Let me tell you about the resident hotel where I just stayed. That's right, I have been to the resident in Liverpool for a lovely, lovely stay. I have to be honest, it was wonderful. And I'm not just saying that, I promise you it was great. The warmest of welcome from the lovely reception team, including a lovely welcome card signed by Megan and the resident team. We were offered a map, we were offered guidance on where to go for food and for drinks. The location was great. We had several activities in Liverpool. We had a friend's birthday dinner. Then we were bowling, we were doing all of that stuff, and all of it was within a 10-minute walk of where the hotel was, which was perfect. Not only that, we had guidance on the best local restaurants and bars where we could also get discounts as a result of staying at the resident. The little kitchen in the hotel room was very, very helpful for coffee drinkers. Unbelievably, I'm not one. There's a little coffee machine right there as well. Do you know what was lovely as well? City centre location... Double-double glazing. There was the outdoor window, then an indoor window. No noise. I slept like an actual log. Beautiful room, very spacious, well-equipped, lovely hotel, lovely staff, lovely location. Take this as a personal endorsement. I've been there, done that, and you should do the same. Stay at the resident. So you're joining us and we're recording on Wednesday the 20th of September on Whitehall Sources. Now you might remember that about a year ago on the 23rd of September was the so-called mini-budget, which has since been called the Kamikaze budget, in reference of course to Kwasi Kwarteng, who was the Chancellor at the time. So we wanted to spend a few minutes on this week's uh, episode just reflecting on, well, where we're at (laughs) one year since the Kamikaze budget. Uh, And we're doing that in the company of James Price, who was a special advisor to Nadim Zahawi when he was Education Secretary. Uh, He continued with Mr Zahawi when he became Chancellor of the Exchequer. And James, you're now at the Adam Smith Institute. Thank you very much for being with us. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's good to have you on. Uh, James, first of all, how do you remember that day almost a year ago of the Kamikaze budget? Were you shocked, horrified, or, you know, quite excited at a potential economic revolution? Well, nearly 52 weeks of therapy trying to forget all about it. It's a little bit triggering to have to do all these sorts of things. Um, it was it was a very peculiar time. And part of the problem was that it was kept so quiet. Um, to everyone, not just, you know, I was at that point in the cabinet office, sat uh, through the link from number 10, and I knew nothing about what was going on. I assumed that people at number 10 knew, only to find out just afterwards that no one, almost nobody had been t- number 10 and the, the senior operation there what was actually going to be in this that was um that was quite a, a peculiar feeling to realize just how little it had been shared around uh, when you think back a couple of years ago from what happened with um with let's may manifesto you thought we would have learned some of the lessons from this but there was no pitch rolling at all uh, and it seems that we managed to forget you know that tricksy old thing of the international bonds market and 
this money was going to come from in the first place. It was quite extraordinary. Yeah. In terms of the reaction to it then, sort of in the immediate aftermath, um, it, it, un- it unraveled really quite remarkably quickly, I suppose. And, and it was the bond market that, that led that. But in terms of the political unraveling, uh, what's your assessment of, of that? Was this the beginning of the end of Liz Truss, really? I mean, I suspect that the, the beginning of the end probably came into effect, if we're being honest, even before that, with some of um, some of the decisions that were made in terms of staffing inside the operation and, and how kind of it was right from the, the very start. Um, if you remember in the immediate aftermath, there was almost sort of shell-shocked by the chamber itself, where, where the conservative backbenchers couldn't quite believe their luck. You know, this was everybody had ever really hoped for on the sort of the right or the free market right of the Conservative Party. It just seemed to come in one go, like some sort of fever dream. Remember the morning after Alistair Heath and the Telegram said, this is quite simply the best Conservative budget I have ever seen in my lifetime. Well, he was half right. You know, if you could affect all of those things uh, and have them be funded for and all the rest of it, we would see gangbusters, all kinds of excitement happening in the UK economy and turn us from this sort of certainly moribund growth-deprived mess into an amazingly thriving economy. The problem was that quite quickly we realized, well, wait a minute, why are you not coming out with part two and explaining how you're going to pay for this stuff even in the short term? There wasn't even the effort to sort of talk about Laffer curves and how growth would start to pay for itself and all the rest of this. It was too much of a sort of sugar rush to the system and it wasn't funded. And, and that was the point at which people started going, why are you not, why are you going out and doubling down and saying there's more to come? How can you just be this tin-eared about things? Yeah. In terms of, uh, I suppose then, the, 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 the sh- there's a kind of short-term impact, but there's also a long-term impact. Here we are a year on. I mean, you made the joke about being in therapy, but th- I suppose the sort of wider consideration here is that, you know, people are, are literally still living with the consequences of this thing as well. Well, this is this is where I have a lot more sympathy, I suppose. Maybe I was being a bit glib earlier. It wouldn't be the first time. But I think you look at the way the interest rates are moving, you look at these sorts of things. The idea that this was all Liz and Quasi's fault is for the birds. I don't think that you know uh, inflation would be much different now if Rishi had won straight away. I don't think interest rates would be that much different. Look at what's happening in the United States like that. And I do think that there is something in what uh, Liz Truss is talking about now about these the, the, the problems in the pension markets and LDI and all those sorts of things. That's definitely true. I think perhaps to call it an establishment stitch-up, as, as she's trying, is making it a bit far. But you know, there were some of these structural problems. I think had she have just come out with the energy support package and ridden out last winter and looked after everybody like that, that would have been a strong hand on the tiller, all these sorts of things. Mm. would have given a lot longer to roll out the, the pitch on some of these things over the winter coming into the spring. And then you'd have had a better understanding of what was going on when she could have had her feet under the table. She had this this sort of drive to try and get things done as quickly as possible, thinking there was no time left. But she, she had a lot more time than you think. You know, we still have almost a quarter of this parliament to go even as we speak today. So she had a lot more time than she thought. And I think it was perhaps just arrogance and cruel, if we're being honest with ourselves, as to why it went the way that it did. Um, James, I, I don't know whether you watched Liz's speech uh, this week. Um, I, I, I caught the edited highlights, let's put it that way. Um, now, you know, she's always been a woman that's uh, gifted with a great amount of resilience. And after a year, she's managed to uh, pretty much make it everybody else's fault but her own. Um, did you sense any kind of sense of personal responsibility in that speech and how alarmed are you that a prime minister doesn't know what LDIs are um I mean I didn't but you know I I've never aspired to work in the treasury so that's all right for me but um for a woman that that makes money her kind of you know uh maths and money and understanding the economy her central tenant I was slightly alarmed that she'd never heard of them yeah, I think that the, the uh, contrition is never really the strong suit of any politician, uh, is it really? I mean, if they, I think if they were to have the level of introspection that some of us have, then perhaps they would just sort of uh, internally combust. And it, it's the, the survival mechanism. <laughs> it is, is the part and parcel of the of the modern political world, right? Maybe that wasn't the case kind of 50 years ago when you had Dennis Healy talking about but it is to have a hinterland. But, you know, the 24-hour nature of things now I means you can have a lot of time for introspection, even after the fact when you're trying to defend a legacy like this. Um, so I don't necessarily blame her for that. I think there's a, a, a broader problem about, as you say, a kind of lack of understanding of how these things work in a, in a big, broad context. Um, and people will say that it's the fault of 
you know, the IEA or any of these sorts of things. And I think it's actually the fact that not enough people listen to uh, the, the kind of free market think tanks, actually, and not enough people have been doing the the the, the rolling the turf. So if more people understood the dire state that the UK is in, maybe people would have been more sympathetic to what she was trying to do. But then again, if she had been more conscientious, uh, rather than just going for some of the headline ideas of, oh, yeah, cut taxes straight away, I think the, the, the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle there. Um, you know, it's certainly the case that how many parliamentarians now do you think will understand the complicated nature of the international economy, right? Maybe about seven. Um, I bet the same number of people I would trust to draw a bath for me. And this is a, this is a broader problem about, about quality. Um, and I think that's also the case inside maybe the uh, the media if I'm being really cruel about these things mm. um, and inside the treasury as well when you when you fire your permanent secretary straight away and you lose all that experience as, as Gwazi did that's a big problem but again if we're, if we're really casting all the blames it's been treasury brain that has meant we've had absolutely no meaningful growth since the financial crash either so as, as Adam Smith the, the man who gives name to the Institute for Knowledge I know work says there's plenty of ruin in a nation it's really, really fascinating. Just as a concluding thought, James, has there has there ever in in your sort of you know knowledge been a, a moment like that that has become such a defining thing? You know, here we are still speaking about it. We're almost commemorating it a year on. You know, it was such a pivotal moment for any number of reasons. Can you think of anything that comes close to comparing to that? It's almost a sort of paradise lost, isn't it? It's it, mm. it's um. It's the kind of the counterfactual. Had this had gone right, where would we be now? I suppose yeah. if you think about it like this: if if Margaret Thatcher had never had the Falklands uh, War come along, which um, you know her, her astonishingly bravery in sending the, the task force down there and winning uh, alongside the SDP splitting off some Labour support meant that she won that stonking majority. You know, had that not have happened, and the the uh, amazing. Uh, market reforms that she started in institute had only just just started to pick up without anything else going into that uh, 1983 election. That she might have been rec- uh, remembered as one of the worst prime ministers ever, and all the rest of it. So you know these things can sometimes turn on a dime like that. I suppose that's one element. Maybe something I think Stewart's want to look back on yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, as another issue like this, and maybe maybe something like Iraq, although that was a much slower burn. But it really is. Um, it, it's, I think it's just the, the extreme speed with which all of this happened, and the sort of freneticism allied to the fact that it happened just off the back of, of the funeral of Her Majesty, when it was such an amazing moment for the country. You know, I was proud to work for Nadine when he was in charge of coordinating that funeral, and to go from the, the absolute best of Britain and hosting all the world leaders in this flawless presentation of the most stalwart amazing public servant maybe any of us have ever seen in our lifetimes and ever will to go from that to such an abject display of amateurism in such a short space of time is probably what's given us all the whiplash that we're still thinking about now are we um, are we effectively saying that liz truss is a black swan event Well, I think it will certainly um, it will give more pause for thought to anybody in the future, um, but that will be for good and ill, right? So Hunt coming along was very good and calm in the moment, um, but maybe now you're looking at the number ten operation. Perhaps the lessons they've learned is to be maybe too careful, whereas now there really isn't a lot of time left, and so rolls of the dice may be required. So I wouldn't necessarily call her a, a black swan event, but maybe a, certainly a dark grey one. <laughs> <laughs> James, sorry, one more question. This is pretty fascinating for me um i mean obviously you work for asi um uh, how much damage has she done to the brand of free market thinking uh i certainly think that it hasn't been uh, the finest moment that we've had and i think that there'll be some thinking around some of these uh these sort of think tanks and some of the advocates of these ideas uh, to retrench but i think the problem is that again we always doom to learn the wrong lessons of the last war um, the, the problem has been about sound money, right? Uh, and Thatcher knew this. She raised taxes when she had to. She was very sensible. Public spending didn't even get cut very much under her, even a little bit. Um, and that that kind of fiscal discipline actually is 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 quite important. Um, so I think that's one of the the, the take homes that the free market movement has to reorient itself around. We can't do Reaganomics because we don't have a kind of dollar reserve currency or the kind of effort and might of that at the moment. Um, but I think the idea of jettisoning supply-side reforms would be the absolute wrong lesson to learn. And I'd just go and look at how non-existent growth has been for far too long. And Liz was fundamentally right in her diagnosis that growth would be the answer and the panacea to so many of our problems, both economic, cultural, societal as well. 
if everybody's getting richer, feeling better and can own their own homes, then suddenly a lot of our social tensions go away and a lot of other fears as well. So that's the, that's the baby we must never throw out with the bathwater. And that's the risk I think we run at the moment if we're not careful. The, the one the one benefit of it, I suppose, is that if and when Starmer and Rachel Reeves come in, they'll realize it's not as easy as all that. Um, and anything they will try will not be going in that direction. Things will continue to slide and get worse. And maybe, just maybe, in 10 years' time, this trust will be able to have the last laugh. James, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you for joining us. Great to have you on. No, thanks so much for having me, guys. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks very much for being with us. Right, joining us on the podcast is Caroline Wheeler, who is the political editor of the Sunday Times. Caroline, hello. Hello. It's so lovely to have you here. Uh, Caroline's book is called Death in the Blood. It is published on the 21st of September, so depending on when you're listening to this, it's probably already out. Uh, In the book, Caroline's been reporting on, well... A, a massive, massive scandal. It's the contaminated blood scandal about which you'll be familiar. But Caroline, you can you can remind us really of the sort of headlines around this. What what is it that you've been investigating for the book? So uh, uh, it came about sort of really by accident when about twenty years ago I was a rookie reporter back in Birmingham on the Sunday uh, Mercury newspaper, and I got a phone call uh, to me office it was just a ring in uh, from a chap called Mick Mason uh, who gave me the most horrifying story of his life saying that he had been infected with hepatitis C HIV and he now feared uh, that he had the uh, human form of mad cow disease if you remember that Uh, it was all the rage back in 2001 and um, he had received a warning from the hospital that he may have been infected with this new infection um, because uh, during the 70s and 80s, uh, haemophiliacs in particular, but not exclusively, um, given uh, imported blood known as factor eight concentrate, um, which was actually um, came from America and was pooled donations. So lots and lots of people's blood all put into one sort of massive pot, um, subject to centrifugal processes and distilled for the factor eight coagulation factor then imported to the UK. The problem being a lot of this blood had been sourced uh, from prisons and also from Skid Row and was already affected with some of those deadly diseases I've just mentioned, uh, which caused uh, what's been described as the worst tragedy, uh, the worst scandal in the NHS history, um, because so many people, in fact 5,000 haemophiliacs in total, were infected uh, with these diseases of which 2,800 are known to have died. It is an absolute tragedy. It is a scandal. It is a disaster. As things stand, just to bring us right up to date, as things stand in 2023, where are we at? Has there been accountability? Has there been any sense of compensation, of empathy for those who have been affected and their families? So throughout the entire course of this campaign, there's been piecemeal uh, sort of efforts made to compensate uh, the victims. But when I say piecemeal, I mean very piecemeal. Mm. Um, the odd sort of scrap from the table here and there. Um, there were support funds set up, uh, which were basically there to give people a bit of support here and there with heating bills, for example, or if they needed particular things to help make their lives easier but these were people um, who very often were unable to work Uh, they'd been ill for some time um, who'd had their lives severely curtailed Um, and and obviously orphans there were widows who've never received any compensation whatsoever Um, but in 2017 after some pretty pretty fancy political footwork um, by myself and Diana Johnson um, ordered a public inquiry that public inquiry uh, began taking evidence back in 2019, and it's due to report its findings this autumn. Um, now, there has been an interim uh, compensation payments made. That was last summer, uh, where the government made a, a gesture of £100,000, uh, which was paid to all the affected sufferers uh, and their spouses. And um, since then, Sir Brian Langstaff, who's leading the inquiry, has made another recommendation um, that they 
settlements should now be extended to orphans and parents uh, of those who have died. But as yet, uh, the government has not moved on that. And we're now expecting uh, to see those findings, as I say, this autumn. Um, but real concern at the moment amongst the victims that they'd be yet more prevaricating over this issue. Um, the government was supposed to set up a compensation scheme so that it ran coterminously with the, the end of the inquiry. Uh, so effectively, whatever the judge said, payments could begin to be made almost immediately. But as I say, that hasn't happened. And there is real concern now um, that this government may not act before the next general election, effectively making this problem um, a problem for Labour. And that's really worrying because people are still dying. They are dying at the rate of around one every four days. And in fact, um, during the time of writing the book, uh, I've got sort of 10 central characters who tell the story of the scandal through their eyes. And three of those uh, people in my book have already died, two of them in the last three I started reading the book and couldn't put it down. And, and you swing when you read it between just heartbreak because the scale of it and the impact on, on whole families uh, is uh, appealing. Um, so, you, so there's this heartbreak, but then there's this real sense of anger. And one of the things that, I mean, obviously we've talked about this scandal uh, a lot over the years. But one of the things I didn't know um, that I found out from your book was that this uh, issue of extremely high-risk blood being imported was first highlighted in a documentary in 1975. So almost 50 years, this has been a known known, and yet we, 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 are, you know, we are where we are now. And I'm struck by... The fact that, you know, a week ago, Theresa May brought her book out about abuse of power, which is how when things go terribly wrong, uh, people's first instincts in, in power is to be, well, how can we protect ourselves? How can we shield ourselves? How can we make sure this isn't our fault? Rather than looking to the people for whom this has caused devastation and saying, how can we make this right? Um, I can't think of a more uh, agonising example of it than than this. But what's kind of struck you about it in in terms of that? Is it this 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 just awful kind of delay? Let's wait them out, or is it even more kind of hostile than that? Well, I think you you raise some really good points. And actually, I interviewed Theresa May as part of the book and obviously at the time didn't know that she was going to produce her own book, which is called The Abuse of Power. And exactly as you said, talks about how the state kind of closes around a lie uh, when things go wrong. And yeah, I mean, writing it, it became even more stark to me just how unforgivable it is that these this group of individuals have not uh, received the compensation or the answers, quite frankly, um, that they deserve. And that's not the case in other countries. In Ireland, there's been settlements. In France, people went to prison. Uh, in America, blood companies had to pay out millions of dollars in compensation. Um, and yet in the UK, this group of people have been left just really howling in the wind uh, for the last, as you say, 50 years. And and it's even more tragic than that. I mean, when I was speaking to, to Lord Owen, uh, the former health minister, uh, who, was, who has really been one of the stalwarts of this campaign, he wanted to move to a system where uh, the UK was self-sufficient in blood supplies and, and indeed made that announcement to the House of Commons. Um, but it never happened. It was never funded. The infrastructure was never put in place. Uh, in my view, uh, had that happened, the impact of the AIDS uh, crisis would have been uh, much more limited uh, than it was particularly for, for haemophiliacs receiving blood transfusions. Um, but he was telling me that he knew about the risks of uh, the sort of viruses in the blood uh, even earlier than that. He read a book, um, I think it was published in 1970 by a guy called Richard Titmus, um, who actually warned about the, the problems of hepatitis uh, in, in the blood. And, and Lord Owen was a doctor himself, so was very au fait uh, with the notion. And yet, as you so rightly say, uh, the warnings were not heeded. And, and that documentary by World in Action uh, in 1975, which, you know, at the time uh, we were all watching terrestrial television, would have been watched by millions of people, should have been an absolute wake-up call um, 
to the state that this was a, an unfolding crisis. Um, but it's not the only warning that was missed. There were there were many, many more uh, during the course of, of the campaign. And it just seems to me that there were a number of factors going on. Um, but one of the more sinister sort of factors for me is that I think they really thought about haemophiliacs as sort of the untermention, the kind of second-class citizens, that because they had this life-limiting condition anyway, uh, somehow it was okay uh, for them to be given this blood and better that they received infected blood than no treatment at all. Uh, but there was no informed consent. So nobody at any point ever said to them, these are the risks, do you want to take them? Um, uh, or are you better kind of going it alone and not having the treatment and perhaps having to deal with the bleeds with some of the older forms of treatment, which were known as cryoprecipitate, but they, they simply weren't told. Hmm. I mean, that's that's so appallingly cynical, isn't it? I just And for the families themselves, uh, I mean, you hear this all the time. Look, I mean, the compensation is not the point. The compensation is evidence of wrongdoing, but what we really need is justice, we need truth. Is that the same in, in, in the case for these families that have been campaigning for for so, so long? Absolutely. I mean, they want to know why this happened, you know, how it could have happened when the warnings were there for so long and, you know, why they've been treated in this way. I mean, there is an even more sinister aspect of this, if that were even possible, but there's a litany of documentation which shows that, in effect, uh, some of the patients, they were known as previously untreated patients, were in effect used as guinea pigs to test the infectivity of some of these blood products. So, so in effect, to basically say, um, we don't know whether the blood has uh, the deadly diseases contained within them. We're trying to eradicate them by using heat treatments uh, to get rid of them. Um, but let's see uh, how it goes with this population of haemophiliacs. And, and the really, really tragic thing about this, as you can imagine, who were the untreated patients at the time? They were children, which is one of the astounding findings of the inquiry, was that so many of those particularly affected with HIV were children. And, you know, for me, I just, I, I, I really want to know how that was ever allowed to happen. You know, there were memos sent uh, sometimes by the, the real head honchos in the haematology world saying, don't use these products on children under 12 because of the risk of infection. And yet they did, and they continued to do so. And in one particular hospital, um, one parent uh, basically says that the children were all on a conveyor belt of death. Uh, for whatever reason, the particular haematologist at that department uh, chose to continue using the, infect the infected factor eight. And 90% of the children being treated at that hospital got HIV and later AIDS, whereas a hospital literally over the other side of, of the Pennines had a much, much lower infection rate. So there was agency in this as well. And I think particularly for the parents of those children that died, they want to know why that was allowed to happen. Yeah, and there's a there's an appalling kind of added element to this, that, that, that at the time that those children were infected and got HIV and then subsequently AIDS, there was a huge amount of ignorance about AIDS at the time. This was like in the 80s. And there's, you know, the story in your book about a family whose yeah. house is attacked and daubed with all sorts of obscene uh, messages because so not only are they struggling with their child uh, being infected, they've got you know they've been basically ostracised uh, by their own community because they're frightened of a disease that they didn't they didn't understand at the time. It's just so appalling. At the very time that family and you're talking about Colin and Jan Smith, whose son Colin died of AIDS at seven years old. It is probably the most heartbreaking of all the stories. And, and that's difficult to say because they're all heartbreaking in their own way. But yes, uh, when Colin was diagnosed with AIDS, that family who needed all the support in the world to deal with a child that was literally wasting away in front of their, their very eyes, eventually so weak and fragile he could only be lifted in a sheepskin, uh, were all the time having to deal with horrendous abuse 
you know, Colin, Colin's dad, uh, you know, talked one time about having to get up in the middle of the night, effectively, to paint the front door because AIDS had been daubed on it and he didn't want the other children to see it and be disturbed. You know, they, they really did suffer the most horrendous abuse. Um, Colin's dad lost his job. They didn't want to be associated with somebody that had, at the time, what was being referred to as the gay plague, um, which obviously turned out to be completely erroneously linked um, to, to, to gay people. And um, I mean, the stigma was just awful. And actually, it, it's a stigma that goes on today. There's still many, um, many families that, that didn't give evidence to the public inquiry openly. They still wanted to be anonymous. They didn't want um, people to know that, that their, their, their family had been affected by AIDS. Um, and of course, one of the people I interview for the book is, is Norman Fowler, who led that very devastating campaign, the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign, um, back in the, the late 80s. And I say late 80s because uh, really the advent of, of AIDS was, was at the beginning of the 80s. And yet we were so slow as a country to wake up to it. And Margaret Thatcher was so worried about sort of um, in, in any way supporting promiscuous behaviour, which was her principal concern at the time, that we didn't actually get a public information campaign on it until right at the end, at the 80s, when, when the, the, the peak of the crisis had already been and gone. I hadn't got very far into the book before I cried for the first time. Mm. It certainly probably won't be the last time I cried reading that book, both in, in heartbreak and in anger. It is an incredible read. Um, and I, just to say uh, to, to listeners, Caroline uh, zipped over this point, uh, being modest, but sometimes, and just to, to lift the tone a bit, sometimes you just get lucky in politics. And when Theresa May needed to fall back on the DUP for confidence and supply after the 2017 general election left her trying to have a you know lead a mi minority government, um, uh, the DUP were uh, supportive of a public inquiry and... Uh, Caroline and Diane Johnson got in touch with the DUP and made it one of the conditions of that confidence and supply that 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 this would be something that the government would sign up to. And so without that critical intervention, we might not have even been at the space, you know, in the place we are now. So, you know, I know you modestly skipped over it, but it, it, it was it was pivotal for the families, pivotal for the campaign. Um, and, you know, sometimes you get a bit of luck, sometimes you make your own luck. Um, yeah. And uh, thank goodness for the families that, you know, that you and Diana uh, intervened when you did. Otherwise, we might still be waiting for even the inquiry. Oh, well, thank you for saying that, Kirsty. I mean, it was, you know, you're absolutely right. It was complete and utter luck. Um, Diana and I had been lobbying uh, the political parties of, of all colours to be including a public inquiry in their manifestos for some time. In, in fact, it was the Liberal Democrats that first did it, um, followed by Labour. And as you say, it just happened to be um, that I'd spoken to the DUP ahead of their manifesto launch, and, and that had been something that they had agreed to put into their manifesto too. So we'd realised um, when Theresa May lost her majority that uh, this was an issue that we now had a majority of support for across the House. And um, Diana, bless her, uh, uh, with, um, with support from me, managed to get uh, a letter signed up to you by all the political leaders of all, all the parties, um, which um, made, and it's funny, isn't it? You know, we get front page stories all the time, you know, Chinese spies, you know, Brexit, you know, Yellowhammer, all of those things. But actually, the proudest story of my career was a very little story, 350 words and no more, on page four of the Sunday Times, two weeks into my new job as deputy political editor back in 2017. And uh, this little, got very, very little attention, but, by, but Diana being the savvy politician that she is, um, back-channeled with, uh, with John Burko, the speaker at the time, and uh, called a UQ on the back of it. And uh, he granted her a um, SO24 debate, which is an emergency debate in the House of Commons. And it was, it was going to be very embarrassing for the government because they were going to have to get both their own MPs to, to vote against something which clearly and patently was the right thing to do. And to her absolute credit, and I do say this, um, having interviewed her and knowing her thoughts on this, uh, Theresa May is uh, one of very few 
um, really sort of uh, leaders that, that follows their kind of moral compass, no matter how difficult um, doing so can sometimes be. And, you know, she knew it was going to be lengthy. She knew it was going to be costly. But she did uh, call that public inquiry because, you know, as she explained to me in the book, she'd had a history of looking at some of these issues like Primados, like Grenfell, um, like the child sex abuse scandal, like Daniel Morgan. And she had, could see that there was something there and that the Department of Health in particular was trying to cover it up. And she thought that was wrong. And she very clearly thought that it was time uh, that somebody did the right thing, and she did. So it was it was it was possibly the most amazing phone call I've ever had. Having um, a friend of yours, actually, Kirsty Tim Smith, uh, called Yay. me <laughs> as I was standing in the atrium. Uh, I was standing in the atrium of Portcullis House, and you know, very unusually, you take a call from the Downing Street switchboard. Um, he came through and just said congratulations, two weeks into your new job, you've got your public inquiry. And, um, uh, you know, all the hairs on the back of my neck stood up at that point. And it was just, it was almost incomprehensible to kind of take it all in. And I immediately spoke to Diana. I think I spoke to Andy Burnham. We were told we couldn't, obviously couldn't say anything publicly about it until the Prime Minister had made the statement on the floor of the House. Um, and then I phoned some of the key campaigners and finally I called my mum. <laughs> <laughs> well, Caroline, I mean, there is a congratulations in there for sure. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it's absolutely classic Caroline Wheeler, just remarkable reporting relentlessly. And uh, we're really grateful for you taking the time to tell us about Death in the Blood, which is the really vital book on the contaminated blood scandal. Uh, Caroline's reporting on it and the testimony, actually, of families, of victims uh, as part of the book as well. Caroline, thank you so much. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Gosh, it's been a bumper episode today, hasn't it? Caroline Wheeler there from the Sunday Times. You've also heard on the podcast from James Price and from Sam Richards and from Kirsty Buchanan as we responded to Rishi Sunak's net zero change of heart. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being with us on Whitehall Sources. Make sure you follow the podcast so you never, ever miss an episode ever again. And please, 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 would you be so willing and so kind as to share the podcast around, whether that's on Twitter or with people that you know or on an email list that you can distribute it to. We'd really, really love to welcome more people along to Whitehall Sources. We're so glad that you're there and we will talk to you again soon.